That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hey, this is Jason Greenblatt on The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. Today, I'm delighted to interview Lady Catherine Ashton. Catherine was the European Union's first high representative for foreign affairs and security from 2009 to 2014. She's the author of a new book, And Then What? Inside Stories of 21st Century Diplomacy. I think you'll find this conversation fascinating. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek. I'm delighted to be here today with Lady Catherine Ashton, the European Union's first high representative for foreign affairs and security from 2009 to 2014. Catherine, I think at that time, the world was probably thought of as a bit of a wild place. But the truth is, I think the world has become even more wild. Here we are as we sit closing out the year 2022. Uh, What's your impression of the world today versus when you had a, a tough job back then? Well, Jason, it's lovely to be with you. And, you know, looking back on those years, it it felt like lots of different issues were coming to fruition, that there was a degree of chaos in the world that we were finding hard to interpret and hard to work out what to do. When I think about it, the truth is none of those situations or issues have been resolved. They're still either bubbling away or in some cases really out there. I mean, the war in Ukraine is an example, but there are plenty of others where you can see that the things we were looking at and trying to bring our expertise or knowledge or experience or money or power to try and resolve, all of those are still unresolved issues. And it's interesting, and we'll get to the war in Ukraine later on in the conversation, but I think people should recognize that the war in Ukraine didn't start roughly a year ago. It really was rooted in, uh, in, in years past, and I'd like you to speak to that. But before we get to that, um, I want to talk about your new book. You wrote, uh, And Then What? A fascinating, fascinating read. Um, I was saying to you before we went on record that the introduction in particular to me was uh, not only heartwarming, but also reminiscent of my time at the White House you know, you step onto the world stage and you have a certain set of skills, you have a certain set of knowledge, uh, but you are asked to try to resolve together with some really talented people some of the world's most complex problems. And at the same time, you're a human being. Um, let me ask you two questions with respect to the book, and I, I recommend that people pick it up, it's not only if you're interested in international affairs and diplomacy and uh, the world as it stands today, current events and all that, but just uh, as a human being to learn more about other people and world problems and potential world solutions. Two questions for you. One, uh, and then what? It's a phrase I actually used very often in the White House. Sometimes I changed it if I was, uh, let's say, particularly having an irritable day, and I would say, so what? Um, Tell us about the title. So I try to always think about what happens next? You know, when you're confronted with situations, often in moments of crisis, you can probably work out 
one or a series of different things you could do to immediately deal with or try and deal with the problem in front of you. But then the bigger question almost comes, which is, and then what? What do you do afterwards? Because, you know, so many of the problems that I was dealing with, that you will have experienced, have years before them. They were years in the making. And you see the manifestation of that problem. But unless you kind of stick with it or get into how can you resolve it in a more comprehensive way, then really all you're doing is the classic putting the sticking plaster over the difficulty. I learned quite early on that you needed to think comprehensively. You needed to think across the problem. Because if you simply dealt with the one bit of it that you could see, you were rarely going to get underneath it. An example of that is from the book, when we looked at the question of Somali piracy, the biggest problem we were facing in 2009, it feels like a very long time ago and a very far away issue, but it was huge. It was damaging trade, commerce, and the World Food Programme's ability to feed people in deep distress. We had a problem of young men being offered huge amounts of money to go and try and capture a boat or a ship. They were sometimes successful. And that led to an enormous problem for us. So unless we resolve the, you know, unless we resolve the problems that led to the crisis, we may be, in a sense, creating a bigger problem in the future, and we're not getting underneath what needs to be done. Yep. Let me address the second thing that really struck me about the book, which was uh, the personal nature of it, the the human perspective. People forget diplomats, even politicians, even world leaders, actually, and you've met you know, many more than I have, but they're all human. You're human, I'm human. Tell me about the human nature perspective of the job, not only um, how you um, how you felt on the world stage and the problems that you were dealing with, but your interlocutors. Uh, were you able to connect with some of them? And you've met some dictators and murderers and war criminals. Um, were you able to connect with them on a human-to-human level? In any situation, when you're dealing with a crisis, there's a very good chance the people that you're dealing with will not be those you would like to become friends with. When you're trying to help people who've been imprisoned or you're trying to resolve situations of conflict or bring together people to try and get them to address their issues, they're not likely to be people who you would meet in any ordinary walk of life. And they're likely to be people who've been involved in aspects of war and conflict and violence that are truly terrible. So you are automatically going to have to think about how you're going to relate to these people because at some level you have to. And that is really about the nature of being human, that we're all looking for ways in which you can build enough trust and confidence in what you're doing or between people that you can try and get to an answer, get to a resolution, get to a situation that is at least better than the situation that you began with. And whether that is, as I've said, issues of conflict and war or simply issues of trying to stop oppression and challenge for people on the ground, that's what you have to do. And it is a very human thing. It takes its toll in a very human way. We are all 
grappling with whether we're good enough, grappling with whether we can actually make a difference, and trying to find elusive solutions at times, but knowing that it falls to us to at least keep going. My The personal story that I like to tell about the human-to-human effect of diplomacy has to do with President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, he and I share completely different views about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I mean, worlds apart. And I used to be criticized for meeting with him until I reminded people that that was my job um, at the White House. I was the Middle East peace envoy. I was the Israeli-Palestinian peace negotiator. So uh, put your criticism aside. This is what I need to do. But no matter how different President Abbas and I were, no matter how we saw the conflict so differently, I disagreed with him on so many things, and I don't have to get into them on this show, there was a situation at the UN General Assembly on the sidelines. President Abbas and President Trump met. It was a challenging meeting. You know, it's a challenging topic, challenging meeting. He was, uh, before he left the meeting, he sought me out across the room, and he didn't have to do this. It was in September, right before the Jewish High Holy Days. He sought me out. He kissed me on my head, and he wished me a Shana Tova. So, you know, it's, uh, people shouldn't lose sight of the fact that we really are all human. We may disagree vehemently about the issues, but progress could be made if you respect each other and approach each other as human beings. It's a good story, Jason, and it illustrates something about the nature of how one conducts negotiations, in my view, which is you have to know something of the people with whom you are dealing or working on the other side. It doesn't mean you cross the line into becoming their friends or their partners or taking their viewpoint, but it does mean at least you know their story, who they are, what matters to them, what's important, and look for the commonality of being able to recognize and welcome and support things um, in ways that just give that, that kind of human nature to it, whether it's through faith, frankly, whether it's through you know, their love of a particular sport, whether it's just knowing something of the family they come from or the village that they live in. Um, it is so important to be able to, to do that because in order to get to a solution, you are going to have to build some level of relationship because you're going to come to that moment when what they're relying on and you're relying on is their word, their bond, the trust that you've given each other. And most of all, in many negotiations, you know, we don't arrive with all the answers. We arrive with positions and ideas and we're testing out and being able to test out your thinking and allow others to do the same, to fly kites and try out ideas for which there's probably no mandate that has been given to either side. But trying those ideas out can give you a sense of what might be and do them in a circumstance where you don't have to fear that they'll be talked about outside or that what you've said will be taken and used against you. That's going to be and always will, will be so important in a negotiation, in a discussion, where that, because it allows you really to be able to test the ideas in a situation of trust. I agree. And, and then I go back to the title of your book, and then what? By building these human-to-human connections, and, and it's not just the negotiators in the room, but the day after the deal is struck, you need the people who are involved in the deal to build those human-to-human connections, all the touchstones you mentioned in your prior answer, because that's what will make a successful deal. 
A deal may stick without those touchstones, although it becomes more shaky. But when you have those touchstones, the deal is much more likely to stick and thrive. Um, So I think it's really, really important. Let's talk about the last sort of broad question about diplomacy before we get into the the challenging stuff, (laughs) today's world problems. What would you say for those interested in diplomacy and foreign policy, even politics, what would you say a diplomat's most important tool or let's say pick the top two tools are? So the top two things for me are the ability to listen and to understand what you have heard. And the second is to exercise judgment. The first, it's about listening, not just for the the rhetoric or the stuff that the people are reading out from the script in front of them, but listening to the person, listening to the room, listening to what's going on, kind of getting a sense of what you're dealing with so that you've got that feel, the the touch stuff, the things that it's very, very hard to articulate, articulate, but which will make a difference in the end. So listening and using what you've heard effectively to try out and to try and move ideas forward. And judgment, because at some point in the kind of diplomacy that we're talking about, you have to work out who you're going to trust and what way you're going to trust them. They may be people advising you. You know, you'll get papers written for you, get ideas put to you. Again, knowing the people that you've got around you and what their skills are, where they come from, where they sit on a particular issue is all part of that. But making a judgment about what you're going to do in the end is about bringing all the information you've got together and deciding from that which direction you're going to go in. You know, your first tool, the listening, reminds me that after my first overseas trip in my position at the White House to Israel and the Palestinian areas, there was a lot of press about how I was a good listener. And that's pretty much the theme of those articles. And, you know, coming from the outside, I was a little bit, I don't want to say insulted, maybe disappointed, maybe a bit um, self-conscious. And I thought, I'm not just a listener, I do things. (laughs) But, you know, in retrospect, I realized that you're right, listening is probably the key tool, because if you're going to sit there and tell everybody what to think and not understand where they are, uh, putting the note cards aside, because those note cards, of course, are not doctrine. They like to say they're doctrine, but they're not. Um, But if you don't really hear people, and not just the leaders, you know, ordinary people and those who have influence, then you're not going to be effective at your job because you won't come up with part two of your toolkit, which is the judgments, the understanding to know where you're going with this. That's right. So let's run, let's run to the world now. Um, Iran, okay? I think uh, the most important thing we could discuss together is Iran. You, know, you were very involved in the original JCPOA. Uh, I think it's fair to say you and I probably disagree on the JCPOA. But let me ask you, the, the question that often comes to my mind, and it's something I say, and I'd love, uh, I'd love for my listeners to hear a different perspective on this, is my view was that the Iran deal was a little bit kicking the can down the road, right? I often say that it would be like me now telling my kids, uh, okay, the sunset clause has passed and now Iran has nuclear weapons again. And we could debate whether or not President Trump was correct, incorrect to rip it up. Um, but what was the thinking at the time for my listeners' benefit of why this was more than just putting a Band-Aid on a huge problem and looking the other way? I'm sure that 
there was a very significant uh, reason that this was hailed as a victory by those who were in support of it. I spent over four years working on the Iran negotiations through two presidents of Iran, Ahmadinejad and Rouhani, and it was extremely different working with those two regimes, night and day, I described it, I think, in terms of the willingness to engage, which was very clear in the Rouhani government, for their own reasons, of course. Um, the job we were given by the United Nations was to bring confidence in the purely peaceful nature of Iran's nuclear program. And we did that through a number of different approaches. A lot of it was about dismantling. A great deal of it was about monitoring and surveillance because what we knew and what the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Authority, who were responsible for monitoring and seeing what was going on, what they were pretty clear about was with the right level of monitoring and surveillance of what was happening, they could be confident that Iran could not move to the building of a nuclear weapon without them knowing. And indeed, if a regime decided they wanted to move to that, the first thing they do is kick out the inspectors. That would be the surest sign of all, really. And so we decided that in order to be confident about that part of the process, we needed an agreement that gave us a year, roughly, that if Iran decided it wanted to build a nuclear device, the processes, because of dismantling, the process because of surveillance, it would be 12 months, during which time there would be time to put back sanctions to take other action if that was deemed appropriate. And that felt at the time like a very good agreement that would give us the certainty that we needed. It was not an agreement that said, this might never ever happen in a million years, because I don't know any agreement where you could be confident of that. But we were confident that what we had done was that. I often say to people that the expectation I certainly had was that we would continue to engage on other issues with Iran. There were plenty of people who were critical of the Iran deal because it just did that and nothing else. And there were many issues, not least in the region itself, where there was a desire to see some kind of a, a debate, negotiation perhaps, or if necessary, some approach that would make Iran take note of the concerns that we had, uh, or that we would take action to deal with it. So I always say it was never meant to be the only thing we, we did. It was meant to be what I've described as taking the boulder out the doorway that enabled us to start talking about other issues. If you compare it with where we are now, it was a good deal. I think it was a good deal then. I stand by that. And I think, yes, I do think it was a mistake to rip it up. Because the problem is we've now gone back to having to start all over again and trying to get that deal rather than building on it. Would we have had to build on it over time? Quite possibly. Do I think that there should have been a continued effort to push further in trying to get more certainty for the countries in the region, not least Israel. Yes, of course. And do I think there should have been a lot of work done 
about Iran's role in the region, absolutely. But I think we could have done that from that position of having got that first agreement in place. And we'll, we'll get to Iran's role in the region more. I want to speak a little bit about Iran's role in Europe with Ukraine, but let's tackle Ukraine and then we'll get back to Iran-Ukraine. Iran-Ukraine-Russia, I should say. Uh, I was very surprised that the world was surprised when Putin actually invaded Ukraine. I mean, you know, I don't think Putin's the type of guy who would surround a country with what he surrounded it with and everybody's saying, no, 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 he's not really going to invade. Why do you think people were so surprised he actually went through with it? I think there were probably two or three reasons. You know, the, the first was that although he was clearly going to do some kind of military action, the expectation based on what had happened before, and I think also for some of the military experts based on what they saw being put in place, was that he would move to either increase the territory in the Donbass that he had control of, and or to make sure that the lines were very strong, to create stronger borders, if you like, between those parts of eastern Ukraine and the rest. That was the expectation. And I think it was also based on the sense that to try and take the whole country, to try and move against a country on its borders in a way that was very clearly a full invasion, was so against the interests, if you like, of Russia in terms of its relationships with everybody else. And so to do that, and to do that without the certainty of, of you know, a country that would be pleased to see them, which this was clearly not going to be the case, seemed to be in the in the, uh, day and age to be quite an extraordinary thing to do. And he did it. And I think there are very few people, actually, who thought that that was what he would actually do. His calculation was, I think, that this was a crisis on his borders of a nation that he felt should be connected to Russia in some way or another, very firmly, very clearly. For some people in Russia, they think Ukraine is part of Russia. For others, that it's the country closest to it. And the idea that it would turn and look west, look to the western in sense of Europe and to NATO, was unacceptable. I think he thought that Zelensky would run or would prove to be not a great leader or that he could get rid of him. None of that happened. And I think he miscalculated in any event that the response of even Europe as a united Europe would be as strong as it was, never mind the response, of course, from the US and others. So he made a lot of miscalculations, but even if you if you accept that's what he thought would happen, I still think it was a surprise to most that he actually did what he did. And let's rewind the tape then. We spoke about this at the beginning of the conversation. This conflict did not start a year ago, right? There's some roots here. Talk about the roots. How did, how did it get to be so bad? So, and, and I tell this story, as you know, in the book. So the discussions have been going on between... Ukraine and the European Union for seven years. Full negotiations about an agreement that was primarily about trade and economics, 
but was also going to be helping Ukraine to reform some of its institutions to deal with corruption and so on. And that agreement had come to fruition. It had reached the point where it had been initialed, which meant the technical discussions were over. It just needed the political signatures with the ceremony and the cameras and the lights. And that ceremony was due to happen in November 2013, with the president of Ukraine, who'd been a strong advocate for this agreement, coming to meet with all of the European leaders and sign this agreement. A few days before, he announced that he wasn't going to sign, and he came nonetheless to Vilnius uh, in Lithuania, where the meeting was to be held, where I met him, and said that he wasn't able to sign it. And from there, it became quickly obvious that this was about the relationship with Russia. It was about a combination of energy prices and Russia's willingness to provide energy, together with a sense that there was a strong link economically between parts of Ukraine and Russia in terms of trade, and the need, as he saw it, to get more financing, supposedly for Ukraine, one's not quite sure where the money all ended up, that um, he didn't think he could get from the West, but he could get from Russia. And overarching, above all of that, was the sense that Putin was not happy that this agreement was going ahead and that for whatever reason, Yanukovych had not made clear to him or not discussed with him what this would all mean. From that, we moved to a position where demonstrations started, the famous Maidan demonstrations flying EU flags. Many of us went to try and do the work that needed to be done to get Yanukovych, the then president, to take seriously what was being said to him by ordinary families, ordinary people all over Ukraine who felt passionately and strongly that this was what they wanted, this was the direction they wanted to move in. And Russia's response to that, as the chaos grew within Ukraine, was, as we know, to take Crimea and to move into the Donbass. Yanukovych left, went to live in Russia, the parliament did its job under the constitution. Russians uh, regarded this as unacceptable. And we moved into a time which over the years has become not quite a frozen conflict, but certainly a conflict that didn't see any signs of being sorted out. I was in, in fact, in Kiev just before lockdown for uh, the pandemic. And it was still a situation that was largely unresolved. Let's tie this back then to Iran. So thankfully, the Ukraine war has not spilled into the rest of the European continent. At the beginning, there was a lot of concern about that. There was even recently the, these rockets that fell inside of Poland, but it turned out that that was not um, Russia attacking Poland. But Iran, uh, by all accounts, seems to be selling drones, perhaps other things, to Russia to attack Ukraine. So in effect, Iran is let's say, attacking the European continent indirectly. How concerned is the, are the Europeans about this? I think very concerned. I mean, very concerned as a, as a general principle about the continuation of the conflict and that 
Russia is now looking to purchase equipment elsewhere, including, of course, Iran. It's also concerning because there is still a strong desire in Europe to try and deal with the nuclear weapons issue. The JCPOA, as far as Europe was concerned, still existed. It was the US that had pulled out. You will understand that from my perspective, I have to ask the question whether had we stayed within the JCPOA, had the US stayed a part of it, the influence that might have been brought to bear on Iran, the possibility that there would have been a different government, the possibilities that together the economic opportunities that could have been part of the incentive might have led to a different direction. I say all these words advisedly, might have, and so on, because there are plenty of people who feel very strongly that Iran would have gone this route anyway, this route anyway. So I'm not trying to say I know definitively, but I do wonder, and you will understand why I wonder, whether we might have been able to influence in a different way. But it is really concerning. And I think the whole question now of what Iran is doing and what its plans are for the future is deeply worrying in the context that, as I said, we are still not able to resolve the nuclear weapons question. And there is a lot of evidence to suggest that is a, a problem that is more acute even than when we did the original JCPOA. And then there is the question of the region. And then there is a question of where Iran sits on these questions that are really about the, the way that the world divides when it comes to a conflict. How can it be that, that people cannot see the obvious aspect of this, which is that Russia is trying to take over a country and that that country is resisting and should be supported to do so? I think in your answer just now, you hit upon what I would say is one of the top three tools of diplomacy. You say things advisedly with humility, right? Unfortunately, there's a lot of diplomats who speak with arrogance and they're so sure of all the answers when most of the time nobody can know what the answers are, right? All we could do is our best. So I want to just point yeah. out that how you speak, how you answer is a, is a very important part of the toolkit of a, of a well-trained, seasoned, talented diplomat. Let's talk about China. Uh, sorry, before we get to China, the Iranian protests. I don't think we could have a discussion about Iran without the protesters. Innocent people being cut down, young kids, uh, women, um, lives being snuffed out. Do you see it different this time than past protests, or is this just, again, a sort of futile hope of, uh, of young people and others supporting them, trying to gain freedom from a brutal regime, or at least, in my opinion, a brutal regime? I mean, there is no question that what began as something to do with uh, women feeling oppressed in, in uh, their own lives has escalated. The challenge really is how you then use that energy to at least try and achieve change. This is not about necessarily changing the regime. It's about getting them to take notice of what it is that you want, getting them to accept that there are aspects of life that are not acceptable to many people. And I remember well my only visit to Iran, that I, I talked with a number of women 
there. And I didn't uh, do it with the knowledge and agreement of the um, government. That went badly from that, that point of view. But I was determined to because I always tried to talk to women in circumstances all over the world where they would be able to just talk to me privately about what was going on. And it was really interesting because here were these extraordinary talented women who were looking for ways in which they could make life better in all sorts of circumstances and who were determined on their own role and capability in this. And what you saw with the demonstrations at the beginning was women saying, you know, we're just not doing this anymore, we're fed up. And that then translated into so many other people wanting to say, this is not the way we want to live. The challenge is to coordinate. The challenge is to be clear what it is you want. The challenge is to decide what you can achieve and want to achieve and keep going. And in my experience of watching movements rise and fall, there are moments that are, are extraordinary, but they don't last. Or they don't last because you need a plan. It's another and then what moment, really. You need a plan. You need to be resourceful. You need to be determined. Because you can bet anything you like, you will meet massive opposition from those who don't want things to change. And that's what we've seen in Iran. So we have to see how people can come together and be clear about what they would like to achieve and how to help sort of move that forward. So now let's talk about China. In the United States, there are those who, many who have a very negative view of China, some perceive it to be uh, a competitor, an extraordinarily talented competitor. Others think of it as an adversary. Some think of it as a foe. Where do the Europeans sit on China these days? It's. I think the same debate actually is going on in Europe that you hear in the United States and certainly in Britain. Because on the one hand, there is this huge economic giant which we have got interwoven relationships with um, that people, I think, in, in, in general understand, at least in part, need to continue. And then there are huge aspects of that that make us very nervous and concerned, especially when it comes to security questions. There are big concerns about China's relationship to Taiwan and its thinking for the immediate future and for the medium term. There are big concerns about China's relationship and role in the whole region. And those all kind of get rolled into um, a situation where we sort of oscillate between the golden age and the ice age of China in our relationship terms. What I think needs to happen is that we, we do need to spend a bit of time thinking about what's going to make sense for political and economic relationships between Europe and, and the US together and China. It's not about seeing it entirely as one thing or another, which is why it's difficult to explain it and why people tend to get tied up in knots when they look at should we have relationships with China or not. It's not that simple. Uh, and Jason, you will remember that in trying to deal with a challenging problem, you've kind of got the spectrum from putting something in the freezer and ignoring it or regarding it as totally and utterly uh, impossible to deal with and certainly not something you want to have any kind of relationship with 
And at the other end of it, you put them in the oven and you baked a really good cake that's great to eat. And what you're always trying to do with, with your relationship with countries or issues is move it away from the freezer and towards the oven, but it will move backwards and forwards. So my guess is that where Europe is and where the US is, we're going to see that movement while it settles down into how far can we try and get a relationship with China that's a positive one without for one moment forgetting what's happening with the Ouija people, forget what's happening with Taiwan, forget what's happening politically, but recognising the realities of China as a huge player and occasionally has been a partner. And I refer back briefly to the Iran talks where China was a partner to Europe and to the US in trying to resolve that question. And so it's it's also worth just looking at when it works and how you can use that to try and build more positive relationships and move a bit more away from the freezer, a little bit more towards the oven. Let's jump over to the Middle East briefly. Um, putting aside the conflicts, because that's we, we don't have time to discuss that. You and I could spend hours on this show talking about those. Um, I want to talk about what I think is a bright spot. There are so many incredibly positive changes going on in the Middle East today. Uh, to use your metaphors, you know, I think we're heading to a golden age, not because of the tremendous wealth or additional wealth that's being created from oil and gas prices, but I think we're, we have some really fine ingredients towards baking that really delicious cake, as you, uh, as you so aptly said. What's your take on the positive aspects of, to, of today's Middle East? I was recently in Abu Dhabi and um, had the privilege of going to see the building construction, which, as you know, is a synagogue, a mosque and a church built together on the same site, beautiful structures, opportunities for people to come together and those faiths and to be able to be in dialogue and discussion to do the things that you and I know really matter, which is to talk to each other, to listen, to understand, and to be able to find solutions to problems. What was so interesting was the sense that things are moving, that as the Abraham Accords, which is a very positive thing, are being built on and should be built on, there is the potential not only to develop better relationships between Israel and the nations of the Gulf and way beyond, but also to find solutions within the region for the issues that need to be determined by the region. We are external players to that, to an extent, who can help and support, but it's my hope that that will enable the dialogue and in a, a, a very thought out way to kind of get moving. And that includes resolving issues around Palestinian people, for sure, because that needs to be done. And the importance of what could be that I could see in the building of these three places of worship is never to be underestimated, because who would have thought and I stood there and said this, who would have thought a few years ago I'd be standing here watching this? Amazing. 
When the foreign minister of the UAE and uh, Yusuf Al-Ateba, the ambassador, showed me the plans, the model for that, I, it was breathtaking. And who would have thought, right? <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. La- last question. You know, young people these days are stressed, disillusioned, angry, upset. They see a world in chaos. Uh, you and I are still young, but we've been around the block a little bit more than them. What's your message to young people today about where the world um, is headed and where it can head? There are many things about our world that are much better than they used to be. Think about healthcare, <laughs> the potential for people to live longer and better lives. Think about education. For many women, not for all, but for many women, life is much better. We are treated more equally. We've not yet got to the golden age. For so many people, there are opportunities that they could never have had. You can travel, you can do things that would have been unheard of for even one generation behind mine. So that we shouldn't look at it as all bad. It's a bit like the debate on technology. You know, people go, it's awful in part. But my goodness, we're using it today that we can talk thousands of miles away, but as if we're in the same room. We are able to communicate in ways we could only have dreamt of. And those are things that are precious and really important. It means we've got the capacity to be informed and to learn. But... There are big underlying problems that we still have to resolve. And it's about what I call politics meets economics, that we have to look at what are we going to do to really try and give opportunities to everyone, not in some kind of soft, you know, generous way in terms of just giving out money. It's not about that. It's about saying the values that we hold that are true and dear to us are really worth having. And we want to offer the opportunity to help support people to benefit from those as well. And for the young people coming up, this is going to be an amazing world and a difficult world. Don't lose sight of the amazing. Hang on to the things that matter to you. Have your faith or your values and both. Just believe that it's possible to make a difference and go out and make it. Lady Catherine Ashton, thank you. Thank you for joining me on The Diplomat. Thank you for your years of government service and helping to make the world a better place, even if we disagree here and there. And thank you for your message of hope to the next generations. Thank you, Jason. Fascinating conversation with Catherine. So many of the issues in her book and in our discussion remind me of my time at the White House. Nothing is ever certain in international diplomacy and world affairs. You can't rely on anything, but you have to try you really have to try. I particularly enjoyed her answer to the last question of uh, what young people these days should look forward to despite all the challenges in the world today. I think it's a great read for those of you who are interested in world affairs, diplomacy, politics, understanding how the world works, current affairs. Pick it up again, Lady Catherine Ashton, and then what? And by the way, if you're interested in all those topics and more, especially today's Middle East, don't forget to pick up my book, In the Path of Abraham, available on Amazon and wherever you get your books. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Greenblatt. This is The Diplomat, brought to you by Newsweek.